Um, yeah, Steve kind of gave me the title this morning. Cue picture. Um, let's get serious. Uh, in looking at Acts 5, uh, we're going to come to it in a moment, I kind of spent a lot of time praying this week what is it kind of, Lord, that in this story is kind of underlying what you want us to get a hold of? And I came to the end to think that actually this is what God was saying. Let's get serious. Now, getting serious also in my mind comes up immediately thoughts of dull, boring, tedious, uninteresting, geeky, whatever. None of that comes out of the story this morning. But what is clear is that the participants in the story were incredibly serious about what they were doing. Um, The Queen thoroughly enjoyed last weekend. Very evident. Lots of pictures of the Queen smiling, enjoying it. Tremendous time of celebration. She couldn't but be moved by it all. But when she looked pretty serious, because as the Archbishop brought out on the Sermon at St. Paul's, she takes her whole role very seriously. Her sense of duty and commitment is something that she takes very seriously, and yet she clearly enjoys it. So let's look at uh, Acts 5 together. I'm just going to read it in three sections. It kind of breaks down into three parts. So we're going to read the first bit together uh, from verse 12 of chapter 5. The apostles performed many miracles and signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you'll be aware that we're in this series on Acts, and we've been looking at various episodes, along the, all the episodes on the way of that journey, right from the beginning uh, of the, uh, the, the story when Jesus leaves his disciples through Pentecost, uh, and on into last week when we looked at Ananias and Sapphira, the couple who found themselves dramatically dying out of their deceit and dishonesty. And the previous section ends with the phrase, great fear sees the whole church, and all we heard about these events. But it didn't take long for the fear not to paralyze them, but to provoke them to fresh action. And so Luke tells in a kind of summary, and there's those verses we just read, that they were getting on with being serious about what they were involved in. That was getting the good news of Jesus out to people around them because they were serious about mission. They'd just seen two of their number die in front of them, but rather than paralyzing, it just reached a sense of urgency that people need to know about this God who wanted people to get to know him, who wanted people to be saved, as we say. Um, And so... This whole lifestyle that they were growing in began to sort of find expression again. They continued to meet together. It says daily, it's still in the temple. There were now some 5,000 people in Jerusalem who were believers. That's a lot of people. 
I don't think they were all there every day in the temple, but there were enough of them that a sufficient number would gather every day in the temple to worship God together and to hear one of the apostles bring them more teaching. Uh, And as a result of that, people stuck around the edge. For all the fact that this fear of joining them had taken over some people, there were still plenty of others who kind of were too inquisitive to want to know. There must have been others gathering on the edge of this crowd. And as they heard the story, so more and more men and women believed. Now this is a pattern that by now become what I'm calling their lifestyle. Back to Acts 2.14 and we read about Peter preaching. The result in 2.47 is that 3,000 people got saved. You go into Acts 3.11 as a result of Peter and John uh, healing that, uh, the cripple. Um, result of that follows that Peter's preaching and explaining what had gone on and Acts 4.4 tells us many more people believed. Acts 4.33, the same thing happens. So that by 5.14, we just read, more and more men and women believed in the Lord. It was their lifestyle to be telling the story on the one hand and seeing people come to faith on the other. There was a whole dynamic of God at work. But it wasn't just a preaching and teaching lifestyle. Remember, we've looked at back in Acts 2 and again in Acts 4, that this was a group of people who were living radically different. They were living a life of generosity and honesty, of integrity and boldness, of unity and friendship, fellowship and care. And the consequence of all that was, as we read again in this passage we just read, they were highly regarded by the people. They had people's respect. People took them seriously. Um, They were far from dull and boring. And amazing things were happening as well in terms of the disciples, the apostles, Seeing miraculous signs and wonders happen. A whole lifestyle that was given over to taking Jesus seriously and taking their mission seriously. Um, There was an authenticity to how they lived that made a real difference. But I think we can, in that sense, look at it and feel very intimidated. I feel, at one level, very intimidated by it. And at another level, it just makes me kind of hungry to see more of what God's doing. And also aware that we can actually look at it and think, oh, you know, they were just amazingly different people. But actually, we ourselves see much of what typified them. We know about it. We may not have the same dynamic yet. We may not see God working in totally the same way. But there are elements of that going on for us. And I had a great story this week. I'm going to get Stu to tell. It's a simple story of something they, Stu and Carol did this week, being of the week. That wasn't dramatic. It was very simple. It was an extension of who they were. It was part of their lifestyle. But it had just a brilliant sort of result in terms of community. Stu, come and just tell us about, you know, your, Carol, Carol's going to tell the story. Great. I'm going to need a mic. couple of weeks ago, um, Stu and I were having this sort of half-finished conversation over the weekend about the Jubilee and what we were going to do, and we planned to go to London, which we did do on the Sunday for the, um, the pageant, but we kind of think, what about, you know, in our neighbourhood and on something on our street, and I kept hearing things on the radio about what people were doing, and feeling like, oh, I'm going to miss out, and the kids should be involved in something. Anyway, Stu then sort of said, I'm going to do a leaflet. He went off to work on the Monday, came home with a leaflet, I thought... I'll call the school, because we can't close the street at this point, because it's too late. 
So we contact St Mary and St John's School and say, can we use your car park, which they have declined before, but it's a new head. And she very kindly said on the Tuesday, yes, you can. And, um, and so then we got a, few, a trickle of response from a few neighbours on the sort of, because um, I did it with them on the Tuesday morning. We got a trickle of a response on the Wednesday or so, and a couple of emails, and thought, yeah, yeah, a few people might manage a barbecue, and we might not use a school, but, you know, at least it's there if more people get involved. And, um, and then one of the neighbours, uh, where we'd had a barbecue last year after, for the, um, the, the royal wedding, um, she sort of got involved. She said, yeah, yeah, I'll get the tablecloths and some banners and napkins and all that kind of stuff. And we said, slightly nervous, quite, got quite a few Republicans around us, not many royalists, and they were happy to come but didn't want to wave any flags, thank you very much. And we're probably a little bit towards the other side. And um, so we wanted a few banners and stuff, so we ordered quite a few off uh, Amazon and uh, some bunting and put that across the street. And the girls down the road, Emily and Bryony and Hayley, they all stuck, got stuck in as well. And as Ollie was coming, we said, Ollie, do you think we could borrow a few trestle tables from the centre? And what about the bouncy castle? And, and suddenly it was coming together. And by Friday, we had about 40 adults signed up and 10 kids and then oh no it's no it's more than that it was 45 and 14 kids and and then actually on the day we must have had 70 because there were extra people that came that weren't on the list and in between I was thinking how are we going to organize the food and can I tell people what to bring and we did we said do you mind bringing this and that and tell us if it's a problem and there was just this huge range of food the tea table looked superb all these beautiful cupcakes and scones and everything and then we had a barbecue later and it was just I mean everybody loved it and the kids I mean they preferred that to going to London to be honest that was the highlight of the week they thought it was great and uh, so and then you know emails have come back saying what a great street you know it's just really nice to meet people we didn't know around and so many more younger children we than we realized and uh, and yeah just wanting to do it again really and just lots of encouragement but it it just, uh, it just took that initial, you know, Stu doing a, a leaflet. That's why I'm standing here, because he got the leaflet out. Do you know what I mean? And then others came on board as well and said, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do that. And uh, it was a great event. I mean, it was supposed to go from 3 till 8 o'clock, and one of the neighbours said, oh, I think that's a bit long. Stop at 7.30, then we can go and watch the concert on telly. And, um, and we're like, yeah, good point, all right. And we'll clear up the next day. And it, we didn't get home till, oh, I think it was nearly 11. You know, we were still up clearing until 12 or something. It was just great atmosphere. Brilliant. <clears throat> now, you, you might think I can't organise a street party. I'm not asking system to go and do that. It's just, I think that's an extension of who Stuart and Carol are in terms of their community around them. But it's actually us living out this authentic lifestyle of being inclusive, being open, letting who we are communicate with people around us. Because we need to be serious about mission. And when I read that the passage has said to you, and on the one hand I'm provoked, on the other hand I'm encouraged. But when I start to think about the disciples, and we've been reading about in Acts already, it struck me there was a kind of challenging list of qualities that they displayed. If we can go to that slide. Um, if you look at all that long list of words up there, each of those we've seen at various times, and we looked at the story of Acts over recent weeks, they were disciplined, they were in the temple every day meeting together. They were bold. We've looked at Peter's boldness. Generous, Steve was talking about last week. Consistent, it was an everyday thing. Obedient, um, Peter, we're going to look at that even more today. Devoted, opportunistic. They took the opportunity in front of them, they took advantage of. Their honesty was important, as we saw last week when they weren't. Integrity, selfless, loyal, joyful, honoured, 
risk-taking. They were prepared to, you know, since Stuart Carroll took a risk last weekend, prepared to be risk-taking, fearless, faith-filled, serious, and above all, full of the Holy Spirit. And when I look at that list, it's not kind of designed to intimidate me. It's in kind of, I've just felt provoked by it. You know, that actually, why don't we maybe see something of what they see in the story in Acts? Well, in part we don't see it because simply God was at work in a sovereign way then that was just crucial to getting the whole early church established. And he certainly wasn't at work because somehow they were more perfect than we are. When we saw last week, they were, some of them were far from perfect. It's not about God blessing them because they were good Christians doing it all right. But there is something about the seriousness with which they took their lifestyle, their faith, their activity, that meant these qualities flowed through from who they are. And I started to think to myself, you know, if I just took some of these things that, yeah, I said to, yeah, I can be generous, I can be disciplined, but would, would these words describe me? I'm not sure they would. And maybe if I just took things a bit more seriously they would actually deal with the stuff that stops me taking it seriously. The being worried about what other people think about me. The, the feelings of insecurity that I couldn't possibly do that. The, the self-doubt that says, well, the other people do it better than I can. Whatever it might be, that stuff gets in the way of actually allowing God to work supernaturally and miraculously through us. What about you? Does that list intimidate you? Does it challenge you? Does it provoke you? They were totally committed to seeing what God was doing be established. If you like, they were seeking first the kingdom. Can I just ask you just to take a moment before I move on to the story? Just to prayerfully where you're at right now. You know, how do you respond to the challenge of seeing God do the miraculous among us? Of seeing people becoming almost daily saved? Part of us wants that. But where do we need to respond to get serious? Where maybe does some of that come into play for us? we take God more seriously and not the stuff that we allow to disqualify us and neuter us and disable us instead. Take a moment prayerfully to ask yourself, is any of that somewhere where I need to take you more seriously in order that the stuff that might get in the way doesn't get in the way? come back to being serious again later on but I just wanted to take a moment just to sort of let that land before we moved on. Okay as we look on through the uh, that first passage we see that remarkable things were happening. There's this fascinating cameo in verses 14 15, verse 15 16. As a result people brought the sick on the streets, laid them on beds and mats and that Peter's shadow might fall on them. So he went 
the other thing that struck me, kind of almost on the side, really, is that when God goes to work and supernatural things start to happen, kind of slightly weird stuff starts to happen too. You know, I mean, Peter's shadow bringing healing, at least I presume that was what was going on, that's what people hoped was going on. Was this actually a response of faith to God being so powerfully around? Or was it a kind of superstitious thing that some people had? I don't know. But either way, when God's around, remarkable things happen. Uh, and we can, I'm just worry aware, it's kind of an aside to where we're going this moment, I just want to put it in brackets if you like. I think back to my own experience when the, God moved back in the, the 90s with the Toronto Blessing and we saw all sorts of kind of weird stuff happening. You know, people responding to the spirit of God moving in power in all sort of wonderful ways. I remember one assembly we did at the King's School when God would wreck the sort of timetable of the day by turning up in the assembly and the kids were responding to God. And, and one, one lad literally swam on the floor in swimming action the whole of the length of the school hall. I have absolutely no idea what was going on in that. I don't know whether he was posing, showing off, being clever, or whether God was in some way doing something remarkable in him. But he was definitely able to sort of just do this with almost without any effort as he kind of swam the length of the school hall. It was kind of strange. Um, but you can then respond to that by getting wonderfully well, scientific analytical. Oh, is this God? You know, is this, you know. And I kind of think we can miss it when we do that. You know, I don't know whether taking Peter's shadow seriously mattered or not. But you know what? It isn't really in the overall scheme of things. If you decided it was God, then you could have got healed. If you got all thoroughly proper and stiff and totally serious about it, you'd have missed it, wouldn't you? Well, I'm not going to do that. It's a very ridiculous thing to do. My goodness, can't be doing that. Well, you might have missed out, mightn't you? Now, I'm not encouraging you to go totally weird. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not that sort of a person. But... <laughs> let's not when God starts to move and weird stuff starts to happen get so analytical and serious about it in a kind of critical way that we miss out on what God's doing yeah. we've got to be open to the fact that God does remarkable stuff yeah. he's God yes. that's why he's God he doesn't act democratically or egalitarianly he doesn't act in great response to our sensibilities he's God and we do need to line up with that uh, and allow him to do that. And recognise in that kind of, this mystery. It's the now and the not yet of the kingdom that we talk about. The fact that the kingdom of God is here. So things are different. We do see people miraculously healed. We do see people dramatically saved. We do see people's lifestyles stunningly turned around. And we also pray for your wife's wretched buzzing in her ears to go away. And it doesn't. And you, you pray for your sister-in-law who's kind of struggling with sort of um, kind of fits and, and memory loss and nothing changes and then you pray for somebody who's got cancer and you discover they've been remarkably healed we live in the now and not yet but to give up and be oh I can't do that you know <laughs> not going to go there we just miss it don't we so, so let's be serious about pressing forward in what God wants for us. This early church was serious about mission. But of course, the effect of that was also that there was a negative thing that happened too. Let's read on. Well, you might call it negative. It's certainly interesting. 
So then, verse 17, the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, because they were very sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection, were were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. I love that. Two verses. In prison, locked up, inside the inner jail, lots of doors locked, angel appears. Come on, guys, we're going out of here. There you are. Now go and tell everybody all about it, leaving all the doors locked and everything apparently normal. Two simple verses, telling an amazing event. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple courts, just as they'd been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, which brackets included Pharisees as well as Sadducees, the whole kind of legal council of the Jews. And they sent for the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers didn't find them there. So they went back and reported, we found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled. Hmm, not surprising really. Wondering what would come of this. And then someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. I presume not sort of many yards from where they were. You know, a bit like, you know, here we are here, Sanhedrin gathered together. And there in the, uh, the Cotswold Hall is Peter telling everybody, it's great, guys. God turned up last night, set us free from jail. That's the powerful God we've got. Now you're going to get saved? So at that, the captain went with the officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and saviour, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honoured by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed them, the Sanhedrin, Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Thudius appeared claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the Recensus and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activities of human origin... It'll fail. But if it's from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called in the apostles and had them flogged. 
They ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy. Oh, I believe that. Come to verse 41 later. Verse 40, stop there. As we engage in mission, as we get serious about mission, we're going to find that everybody thinks the same way. We are bound to get a reaction. And there's probably something wrong if we don't. That's not an excuse to go out and be idiotic, make ourselves as unpopular as possible. We're not trying to provoke a reaction. But when it comes, we shouldn't be surprised. Why? Because the gospel divides people. Jesus was clear about that. Remember when he sent out the 72, he warned them in terms of there are going to be towns you go into where people are going to say, great, come here, stay a while, tell us all about it. And others are going to say, get knotted, we don't want anything to do with you. And to the latter, Jesus said, we'll ignore them and move on. He warned that the gospel would divide families in Luke 12. And even when, as Steve was referring to miracles earlier on, even then people didn't always believe. Some wanted to attribute the miracles to the devil rather than to Jesus. Such was, was their response. So it's no wonder when the apostles are going for it that they stir up some reaction, some opposition. Now, Steve said the other week, sometimes that is actually had a misunderstanding. And you can deal with that by being sensible, explaining what's really going on, and people will listen to you. But at other times, you're going to get a reaction because you're touching something where you've got a clash of kingdoms going on. Because we belong to the kingdom of God, and if we're not in the kingdom of God, the scriptures are pretty clear, then we belong to another kingdom kingdom where the prince of this world rules and he's not too keen about his kingdom being encroached on even though he hasn't woke up to the fact yet that the battle's lost and he quickly gave up and laid down and died the best for us but (laughs) being slightly trite sorry but in that sense of this clash of kingdoms we've got to understand that when we go out there presenting the kingdom we're going to get a reaction of some sort and sadly in a strange way, that reaction often comes, as it did here, most from the religious community. It's a source of pain, stroke, not surprise to Steve and I, that some of the most vitriolic responses we've had to the whole idea of establishing a new primary school in the city for the good of the city, to bless the city, to also present a thoroughly godly ethos to a community of the school we run, But the reaction to that has been most vitriolic has come from some members of other churches in the city. Now, at one level, that's a great sadness. Another level, it's not a surprise because there's something that goes on in this clash of kingdoms thing where something religious gets touched and it reacts. And that was what was happening here. But it's also interesting just to look at kind of some of the aspects of that reaction because I think actually there's a challenge for us in that and it might help us if we look through the various responses in this story verse 17 initially we read they were jealous the Sadducees were filled with jealousy what about well the previous verses talk about Peter getting out there gathering lots of crowds seeing people following him because they were following Jesus and becoming Christians, followers of the new way. 
it looks like their authority was being undermined. They were less popular. They weren't counting in quite the same way. They weren't as influential as successful. They were jealous. And then others were fearful. We read about the, the guards being afraid of what the people would say. Taking that slightly out of context, but I think it's part of the response of why the reaction goes on. There's a fear reaction going on because we're afraid of what other people think, of their reactions. And also, interestingly, they were afraid of Jesus' name. Look down in verse, verse 28. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. What name? In the context, there's no mention of Jesus. We don't want to mention that name. We don't like that name because the name of Jesus just carries so much with it, so much power, so much authority, and we're actually afraid of it. So we won't mention it. We'll just talk about that name. Fear. Fear of others, fear of the name of Jesus. And then there's that other wonderful thing that uh, I have to confess to having been particularly guilty of, and I think God's actually helped me change, which is that little thing of blame shifting. It's not my fault. I didn't really, you know, it's what you did. He said directly most of the blame back at his wife whenever she pointed out something that I'd done wrong. Um, and they did it here. The Pharisees, sorry, the Sadducees did it here. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Well, all Peter's doing is telling the truth. They're feeling guilty, but it's all your fault because you're making me feel guilty. It's not, not my responsibility that I'm under conviction here because actually God's on my case. No, it's all your nasty fault because you're making me feel guilty. Blame shifting. And finally, there's their anger in verse 33 at the way their religious values are overturned. Because their whole response to Peter's statement about Jesus and what Jesus had done and the way God had raised him up and and brought about his resurrection and was offering repentance and forgiveness, that was blasphemy to them. And they were furious because their religious values were being overturned. And the effect, both in the beginning and the end of all of their reaction, was to be bullies. They'd thrown Peter Peter and the apostles in jail and then in verse 40 rather than, sorry, verse, yeah, verse 40, rather than just saying, okay, guys, just don't go, don't go away and be naughty boys and do it again. They actually had them flogged. And flogged means 39 lashes with that kind of pretty vicious piece of equipment, which was well known to kill people. Um, kind of, well, we don't like it. We're guilty here. We're fearful. We're jealous, but we're going to beat you up anyway because we're the bullies around here. That was their reaction, at which point... <laughs> I suspect if you're like me when you first read it, you think, well, that's what those people did because they didn't understand. They were the bad guys, and we're the good guys. And then I kind of had this kind of uncomfortable moment where I thought, but hang on a minute, all their reaction was to shut out the gospel and the effect of the gospel on their lives, of God's transforming work going to work. Because they allowed jealousy, fear, blame-shifting, anger, and even bullying to keep God at arm's length. And I had to ask myself, ouch, where do I see myself doing? And I, was even, I mean, I've confessed the blame-shifting bit. I won't list all my sins in public. It's not too edifying. But you know, let me talk to all of us, because I guess you're not a million miles different from me. 
when do we find ourselves in situations where God's doing something, maybe in somebody else, and our response isn't, that's fantastic, I'm really excited for you, God, I'd love you to do more of that, but why not me? Why don't you do it for me, God? Touch of the jealousy coming in. You know, God starts to move, and we think, oh, I can't get involved in that because I'm afraid of what people think of me if I look a bit silly. And fear gets us. God puts his finger on us, he wants to change something in us, and all we do is pass the buck on to somebody else. No, it's not my responsibility, I didn't really do that, it was because of what they did. The Adam syndrome, if you like. People prefer that to blame shifting. Anger. I don't quite know how bullying fits in, except I suspect that kind of that pole posturing, we can get kind of angry and aggressive almost with God sometimes, in a way that actually isn't necessarily always helpful. Sometimes being angry with God's perfectly understandable and God understands that and he's big enough to handle it. But sometimes we don't hang our anger, right, anger rightly. So it's a kind of another pause, think moment, if you like. We'll come back to it later. But I just want to sort of invite us to think about where might we be in danger of missing what God's doing because that sort of stuff or other reactions get in the way and we don't discern ourselves enough to realise that's what we're doing. We're shutting God out because we're allowing negative reactions to hinder us. We want the good stuff, but we're not taking the negative reactions seriously enough and dealing with them. Anyway, in this situation, three sets of people speak out. The first is God, through his angel, when he says, go tell the full message of this new life. It's just worth Letting that sink in for a moment. There's a challenge here because that statement became the basis on which Peter then acted when he was in the hot seat in front of the Sanhedrin in the verses that followed. He got God ringing in his ears saying, go tell the full message of new life. There's a kind of embracing of that that I feel we need to get a hold of, that we're willing to go and tell. Steve started off this morning talking about Tim Keller and his book. Go and read it if you want help understanding what it is you've got to go and tell. That you've got to hold the full message. Peter preached the full message in verses 20 to 29 to 32. It didn't take very long. Yeah, we've got to obey God and men because God of our fathers, either God that's been working redemptively through people over generations since the, the, the beginning of time to bring a people for himself, that God has finally raised up Jesus And he's raised him from the dead to overcome everything. He's set himself as in a position of honour as prince and saviour. And because he's done all that stuff for us, there's now repentance demanded of us that leads to forgiveness. And we know it's all true because we've seen amazing stuff happen over the last few months. It just confirms that this is the God that's at work. The full message. We don't have to discharge that, like in this context where Peter had to give the full message in one go, bang, guys, this is what you need to hear. There will be times when we know that's the right time to do that. Other times when we're engaging in taking mission seriously, we're going to tell a bit of that story. Um, Don't feel that the principle of go tell the full message of new life is one of you've got to do it in completeness every time, but it is that you've got to be ready to tell the full message. 
and that you don't have a message that has deliberately left part of it out because it's the bit that you're not comfortable with because people might not like it. So we'll talk about the God who loves us and wants us to be nice and lovey-dovey and gorgeous to us, but we won't talk about personal responsibility and rebellion against God because people don't like that sort of stuff. But the full message has got to be both of those things. God does love us passionately and he wants a relationship with us. We've got to understand to engage in full relationship with him, we've got to take our own responsibility to have not been part of that seriously as well. A full message. And it's a full message of new life. There is a new life. Quote from what I read in the, in the context of this. When we realise that God is there to help us live the life he's commanded for us, life becomes a new thing. New beauty, new loveliness, new winsomeness, new strength. Free from the fear of frustration that characterises our life without God. There is a new life that we want to testify to that God has for us that is completely different to anything we'd known before. That's the challenge that Peter was faced with. That's the challenge that faces all of us as we set about taking mission seriously. And two people responded positively to that message. Peter's own positive response was to obey God rather than men. Peter was serious about obedience, which is my third serious of the morning. We need to be people serious about mission, Sorry, my second serious. Sorry, my second serious. I'm getting ahead of myself. Serious about mission, serious about obedience. For Peter, there could be no compromise. He knew that God had raised Jesus from the dead. He knew that repentance and forgiveness were now freely available. The Holy Spirit had filled him and the other disciples with power. And he knew what it was to experience that. And he also knew the pain of not obeying God because he ducked it not that many months previously, just before the crucifixion. And something in him didn't want to go there again, I'm sure. So that's okay. He'd been through a negative and now he's going to be different. We can learn from our mistakes. We can move on. But he also knew that there was something about this power of life with God that he was now experiencing with the Holy Spirit that was linked to obedience. Because Jesus had said to them back in, uh, read about it in John 16, 17, about if you obey me, you'll do what I ask, and I will give you the Holy Spirit. There's something of a dynamic between our obedience and response to God and our experiencing the fullness of the Holy Spirit that goes together. God is a God of grace and love, but there is still something that overrides that, of his willingness to respond to our obedience that releases more. As we set about taking God seriously and obeying him, we will experience more of his Holy Spirit, I'm sure of that, and enjoy the empowering that God had given to Peter. And Peter knew it was better to risk the wrath of the Sanhedrin than lose this presence and power of God that he was enjoying at that point. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit and God has given to those who obey him. Peter wasn't going to put at risk his relationship with the Holy Spirit by not being obedient to what God had told him to do. And the other person who responds positively is Gamaliel. 
In times of opposition, friends can come from strange places. And suddenly in the midst of this host of people opposed to Peter, a guy speaks up and says, actually, you know what? If it's God, we better not touch it because it'll last and we're fighting God. That's not a very good idea, is it? Now, there was probably some politics going on here because Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He actually was the, the, the guy who tutored Paul, which throws up other interesting questions in terms of what Paul got up to when he was Saul before he met God and was converted, which we'll read about weeks to come. But Gamaliel as a Pharisee didn't like the Sadducees because he believed in resurrection and they didn't. So there was probably something of oh, a political opportunity here because we could get the upper hand. Because if God's around and doing something about resurrection, then we Pharisees are for that. And so if we can side with them against the Sadducees, we might win the political battle here as well. There, he might have been mixed motives. I don't care. God used him to speak truth into that situation. Which is that if it's God, guys, then you better leave it alone because you don't end up fighting God, not men. What we need, I believe, the lesson from that is, and that's a great truth and that kind of lands for us, what we need is to take hold of that in faith with a perspective that says, yes, that is true. Because when in the short term it isn't working out that way, we do that, God, where are you? Why do the heavens feel like brass? And do I really believe this sort of stuff anyway? I would suggest because we've probably got a short-term perspective. There must have been thousands of people, Christians, through that Second World War who thought that as they saw more and more oppression and tyranny wreaked on them through, the, uh, through what was going on in some of the atrocities of the Second World War. On whatever side of the fence they experienced those atrocities. We've got people in Syria going through that right now. Thinking kind of, God, where are you? And God's time frames, you know, I've said it before, God never invented Nescafe. God does not deal in the instant in that kind of self-gratifying way. He takes time to make a decent cup of coffee. You know, God acting to work things out has a time frame which is often infuriatingly a bit longer than ours. But it's the time frame which still means that God wins through in the end. And if we set about opposing it, then we're stuffed. So let's not be those who sign up with the Sadducees. But let's be those who like with Gamaliel, recognise what God's doing. And need the eye of faith to see that sometimes and to hang on to it. And that, you know, if you're in the middle of parts of Syria right now, is a real challenge for the Christians that are there. But God's got to win through because God is not on the side of tyranny. Peter took his obedience seriously. Gamaliel recognised the apostles were obeying God and he needed to take it seriously too. Serious about obedience. And what was the key to all of this? Last couple of verses. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name with a capital N. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Underneath all of this, being serious about mission, being serious about obedience, was they were serious about Jesus. 
This last weekend, we've seen people serious about honouring the Queen, whether it's been done formally with lots of time, effort and money, or it's been done spontaneously with people camping out in St James's Park, you know, they could be at the front of the line to wave their flag and queer the, cheer the Queen on whichever day it was, on Tuesday morning, Tuesday afternoon. People were prepared to put themselves out to honour the Queen last weekend. They were willing to suffer some of them a certain amount of discomfort, if you like, to go through honouring somebody important. The apostles had that in greater measure because they were willing to go through suffering, not with us, and you don't really sense of the kind of the the martyrish, poor me, uh, just God wants me to suffer thing. That's not that's what comes through. It was, wow, Jesus thinks that much of us. He's that pleased with us, he's that sort of excited for us, that he's willing to let us just suffer a bit like he did because that's, you know, something of how he feels and and we're just so thrilled to be able to do this for Jesus even if it's tough, because you know what, there's just a, a delight in our hearts for loving and serving him that carries us through everything else the name everything Jesus was that's, we know that, you know, when we talk about the name of Jesus, we don't just mean his title, we're talking about everything that encapsulates who Jesus was. They counted themselves worthy of suffering for the name. And they did it tremendously joyfully. They came out rejoicing, not relieved, rejoicing, because of what had gone on. They came out with this tremendous sense of, of their own worth in the whole thing, counted worthy. And, remarkably, they had renewed energy. There they were, straight back, day after day, in the temple courts. There they were, teaching and proclaiming the good news. And what gets left out is, and more and more people got saved. Because I'm sure that was going on as well, because that's the pattern we've been living with. They weren't put off. They were just renewedly passionate to get about the thing that they knew was the most important thing they needed to be giving themselves to, which was sharing this fabulous news of what God had done whenever they could with those around them. We started in mission, we've ended in mission. People who were serious about mission, serious about obeying God, because they were serious about Jesus. And if you, you know, go back over that story, that wasn't boring, was it? You know, dramatic angels turning up, releasing you from prison, stories of the miraculous and people getting you know, amazingly healed, people getting saved daily. Being serious isn't boring. It might be risky, might be darn right uncomfortable at times, but it isn't boring. To quote dear John McEnroe, who we're going to hear a lot of in the next couple of weeks, one, two weeks' time, truly, we can be serious. So where's God asking you to get serious this morning? Where am I being asked to get serious? Graham brought out that challenge earlier on. Let's do business with God. There's something in our hearts about this whole getting the good news out there thing that, that God has got us hold of us in. You know, that, that's, that's, that's reality. But there's still something, I think, of a yet getting serious that he wants us to grow in. Where do we need to do business with God this morning? Where do we need to embrace those positives of the disciples' character and attitude? Where do we need to be on our guard against the negatives of the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin?
where do we need to get serious with God? Let's just take a moment just where you are just to ask God that question. What's God saying to you this morning that might require not just a, um, a kind of a scent of intent, but actually something more solid than that from you this morning? Let's take a moment just to allow God to speak to you. I don't want to, it's not me who's doing it, it's the word of God. What's God saying to you this morning?